0: Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. When we see somebody whose life is being destroyed by sin, it's unloving to walk by and pretend we don't see that they're in need. No, if we see somebody who's been overtaken and beaten up by sin, we need to help restore them. That word restore, katarizō in Greek, refers to the setting of a bone that has been broken.
1: Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor Dr. Robert Jeffress. You know, even with the Holy Spirit's guidance, we're not always inclined to want the right things. We're under constant tension between our earthly desires and what God wants for us. And today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress explores the difference between our wants and our needs in four key areas of life. Now here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to
0: Pathway to Victory. When was the last time you pled with Jesus to meet your needs? I mean, got down on your knees and specifically appealed to Jesus to come through for you. Well, sometimes we forget that Jesus loves us when we come to him. In fact, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about providing for his children. And we're going to explore that promise today and tomorrow. In addition, I've written a best-selling book about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and time is running out to request your copy. My book is titled, 18 Minutes with Jesus. The subtitle is, Straight Talk from the Savior About the Things That Matter Most. With clarity and compassion, Jesus taught us how to deal with things like broken friendships, worrying about money, and how to cultivate purity in our most intimate relationship, our marriage. My book goes into far greater detail than this broadcast, and it'll help you understand how to apply the timeless wisdom of Jesus in your daily life. Ask for a copy of my best-selling book, 18 Minutes with Jesus, when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory. By the way, I want to say a personal word of thanks to all of you who have given to Pathway to Victory in recent days. Because of your generosity, we have grown by leaps and bounds. In fact, we're able to expand our influence around the world because of partners like you. Thanks for coming alongside of us with your financial support, and please keep up the good work. Now, let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew and begin our study today. I titled today's message, Straight Talk About Your Needs. Effective Parents know how to distinguish between their children's wants and their children's needs. There is a difference. When our girls were little and growing up in our house, if Amy had asked them what they wanted for dinner, one would have answered bluebell ice cream, and the other would have answered Pop-Tarts. Clearly there was a difference between what they wanted and what they needed. And it's the same way in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Not everything we want is what we really need. And not everything we need is something that we want. Yet when we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit does a work in our life to begin to transform our wants, our desires, into God's desires for our life. And yet, as long as we live on planet Earth, there'll always be a sense in which our desires, our wants, and our needs will be out of alignment with one another. And that's why Jesus, in this next to the last section of the Sermon on the Mount, distinguishes between our wants and our needs in four specific areas of our life. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven, as we look at some straight talk from the Savior about our needs. Now, I wanna confess something to you. This is the next to the last sermon in our Sermon on the Mount series, and I had more difficulty preparing this sermon than I did any of the others in this series. And the reason is this. I understood the concept of the difference between wants and needs but I couldn't figure out why Jesus chose to address these four issues. I mean, what's the common denominator? What's the thread that ties all of these four issues together? And I tried to approach it like solving an algebra problem. (laughs) I mean, all week, I tried to find the hidden denominator, the thread. And as the week started to draw to an end, I started to get more desperate. And finally, yesterday, I gave up. And I felt such a relief because the thought finally hit me, you know what? There is no link there is no common denominator. One of the great things about being God is you can talk about whatever you want to without having to tie the subjects together. And what God is saying is, these may not be your four top concerns or my four top concerns, but they're his concerns. And we need to know what's important to God. And so we're going to look at these four different areas of life in which there's a difference between what we want and what we need. Let's look at the first area. The first area Jesus deals with is the subject of sinning Christians. We want to condemn other people, sinning Christians. But Jesus says we need to restore sinning Christians. Look at verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Commentator D.A. Carson points out that it was just a few years ago that the most often quoted passage in the Bible, both by Christians and non-Christians, was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes on him will not perish but will have eternal life. But John 3.16 has been replaced now as the most quoted verse. You know what the most quoted verse among non-Christians and Christians alike is? It's this one. Judge not, lest ye be judged. People think that's the heart of the New Testament. And people today take that verse as kind of a king's X that protects them, that exempts them from any judgment about their lives. Don't judge their sexual behavior, they say, because after all, Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged. Don't judge false religions like Mormonism or Islam or Hinduism as being deficient in offering a way to heaven. Don't judge another religion because after all, Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged. Is that what Jesus is saying? That's certainly a popular concept in an everything-goes culture. But even just a superficial reading of the Bible makes it obvious that Jesus is not prohibiting any kind of evaluation, any kind of judgment. There are situations in which we must make a judgment, the Bible says. For example, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. Don't marry an unbeliever. Well, to obey that, you have to make a judgment, don't you, about somebody, whether or not they're a believer or not. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 to 13, Paul is dealing with the subject of a man who was sinning in the Corinthian church and was causing the reputation of Christ to be blemished because of it. Paul said, it's time to... Kick this guy out of the church. He's unrepentant. And notice what he says in verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul said, I don't have any interest in judging non-Christians. That's God's business. I tell the truth and let God make the judgment. But we are to judge those who are inside the church. We're to make an evaluation. And if they're sinning in such a way as to hurt the reputation of Christ, we're to deal with it. Those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man among yourselves. Even in this chapter, Matthew 7, Jesus talks about making a judgment. Next time we're going to look at the fact that Jesus said there are two roads in life. There is the broad road that leads to hell. There is the narrow road that leads to heaven. We have to judge, evaluate which is which. In verse 15 of Matthew 7, Jesus is going to say, beware of false prophets. Well, if you're going to beware of false prophets, you've got to judge who is a false prophet. And Jesus is going to give us some specific criteria criteria next week that we'll look at next time on how to judge a false prophet. Even in this passage, in this verse, Jesus is going to say, you need to make a judgment. There's nothing wrong with trying to remove the speck from somebody's eyes, but you better, first of all, judge your own eye and then judge clearly so that you can take the speck out in an efficient and compassionate way. That requires a judgment. So what did Jesus mean when he said, judge not lest you be judged? Well, that word judge in Greek is the word krino, K-R-I-N-O. And among a variety of different meanings, here are two ideas that krino carries with it that I think Jesus had in mind. First of all, not to judge means not to judge somebody's motives. When we're evaluating somebody, we cannot judge somebody's motives. Uh, Tonight, our orchestra is going to play the theme from Superman. Well, guess what? You're not Superman, I'm not Superman. We don't have x-ray vision. We can't peer into somebody's heart and know why they do what they do. Only God can do that. First Samuel sixteen seven says, for God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. There is a day coming when God is gonna make people's motives known. First Corinthians four five says, therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and will disclose the motives of men's hearts. Only God can judge somebody's motives. I think when Jesus is saying, do not judge. He's not only talking about motives, but he's talking about final condemnation. Jesus is saying, don't pass a final condemnation on people. Don't say about somebody, they are beyond forgiveness. They are beyond redemption. That's what the Pharisees loved to do. They were listening to this message. They loved to say, oh, they can never be saved. They can never be right with God. No, only God can make that kind of judgment. Don't judge with a final condemnation. Why are we not to judge other people's motives or issue a final condemnation? Look at verse two. Jesus said, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. That's why it's unwise to judge other people in this way because whatever standard you used will be used against you one day. I think what Jesus is talking about here is a kind of Christian karma. (laughs) I don't always understand it, but I've seen it and I bet you have too. Somebody is unkind, unforgiving, rigid with everybody they meet and suddenly when their time of need comes, other people are harsh and unbending and rigid with them. If you don't show mercy to others, they don't show it to you. It's not always the same people. You can treat somebody in a rigid, unforgiving way, and somebody else does the same thing to you. It's kind of the old saying, what goes around comes around. Do you know people like that? They are rigid, unbending, hard, and harsh, and suddenly when their time of need comes, people are that way toward them. That's why it's unwise to judge other people. So, pastor, are you saying we just ought to adopt the live and let live philosophy? Don't make any kind of evaluation about anybody? Not at all. In fact, one of the most loving things we can do is to help restore a sinning Christian to a right relationship with God. In Galatians 6, verse 1, Paul wrote, Brethren, even if anyone is caught up in any trespass, Literally, if any one of you is overtaken by a sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. When we see somebody whose life is being destroyed by sin, it's unloving to walk by and pretend we don't see that they're in need. No, if we see somebody who's been overtaken and beaten up by sin, we need to help restore them. That word restore, (katarizo) in Greek, refers to the setting of a bone that has been broken. That's a delicate operation. It requires patience and precision and gentleness. We ought to deal with a sinning Christian in the same way. Now, there are some certain sins that call for uh, sometimes drastic action. In Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, Jesus and Paul deal with situations in which somebody is sinning in such a way that they're hurting other people, or they're hurting the reputation of the church, they're hurting the cause of Christ, they're hurting the unity of the fellowship. In those cases, if they don't repent, you may have to take drastic action and turn them out of the church, both Jesus and Paul talked about. But that's not the kind of sin Paul had in mind. Galatians 6.1, he's talking about a private sin, a sin that is destroying somebody else's life. And I think that's what Jesus has in mind here in Matthew 7. He's talking about being gentle with those who are caught up in sin. Look at verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, and behold, the log is in your eye? Those were the Pharisees. They loved to go out around and find specks in people's eyes and say, oh, you need to get rid of that. You need to get rid of that. Get rid of that. And they don't notice the log in their own eye. How many of you have ever had something in your eye that caused Discomfort. You know, it doesn't take much, does it? Just a little grain of sand, just a little particle can drive you crazy. Your eye waters. All you can think about is that speck in your eye. You do everything you can to get it out. And if somebody offered you help, that would be a gracious thing for them to do. I mean, a speck is uncomfortable. So just imagine, I've had this happen before. You're so desperate to get that particle out of your eye, you go to the ophthalmologist You check in, the nurse gets you seated, said the doctor will be in in a moment to see you. And the doctor walks in, he says, how can I help you? But you can't help but notice that the doctor has a two by four coming out of his eye. He stumbles right, let me help you take care of that speck. Do you want him near your eye? Not on your life. You'd say, doctor, you've got a bigger problem to deal with first. Take that two by four out of your eye and then maybe I'll let you operate on me. Now, the doctor's trying to help, but he can't see clearly to take that speck out of your eye until he deals with the log in his own. That's what Jesus is saying here. Look at verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's a gracious thing to help somebody take a speck out of their eye to deal with sin in their life. Jesus, listen, Jesus is not saying you have to be perfect before you can do that. If we had waited until we were perfect, none of us would help anybody. But what he is saying is make sure you have dealt clearly with sin in your life the best you can before you try to help somebody else. For example, if you see somebody who's been overtaken by a pornography addiction, it's a merciful thing to do what you can to help them break that habit. But if you're involved in an adulterous affair, you're not going to be able to see clearly to help somebody else deal with immorality in their life. If you have a friend or family member, somebody you know who's just exploding all the time in anger, you're not going to be able to help them with that problem if you're constantly abusing your mate or children without bursts of anger. That's what he's talking about. Take the log out of your own eye before you try to help somebody else. No, it's a very gracious thing. It's a helpful thing to turn a sinning Christian back into a right relationship with God. James said it this way in James 5, 19 to 20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We want to condemn sinning Christians. We need to restore sinning Christians. And that leads to a second area Jesus distinguishes between our wants and needs, and that is evangelism, sharing the gospel. We want everyone to accept God's message. We need to understand not everyone will accept God's message. Look at verse 6 do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Remember, the context is he's talked about helping to restore a sinning Christian. And he's warning you, don't be surprised if not everybody responds positively to your offer of help. Because what is holy and right and good to you may not be to somebody else. Not everybody you try to restore is going to respond correctly. But I think he's going beyond this to talk about sharing any word from God, including the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not everybody will respond positively. What does he mean, don't give what is holy to dogs? In Jesus' day, dogs were not these little cuddly house pets you keep. No, they were diseased, ridden, mongrel dogs that roam the streets of Jerusalem in packs. They could be very dangerous. You wouldn't think of giving something holy, a piece of meat sacrificed at the temple to one of these scoundrel dogs. You wouldn't think of doing that. Don't give what is holy to dogs. And then he says, don't throw your pearls before swine. Again, in Jesus' day, swine were not these, you know, Cartoon pigs, you see, like the three little pigs or porky pig that we are entertained by. These were scavenger swine that again roamed in packs and, if left unfed, could destroy a human being. Just imagine inadvertently coming upon a pack of these hungry swine and you could see they were looking for dinner and you were on the menu. And so you try to dissuade them and you have some pearls that you have purchased at a great price, and you throw those pearls to the swine to distract them. Now, though they were very valuable to you, if those swine began crunching on those pearls, they wouldn't be happy about it. They would have thought you had tricked them, given them something that didn't help them. It would just irritate them even more. It's the same way. The Bible says the gospel, the message of God, is that pearl of great price. It's valuable to those of us who are saved. But to certain unbelievers, if you present it to them, it only infuriates them more. This hadn't happened often, but I've had it happen before. Sharing your faith with an unbeliever and having that unbeliever start to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ, become angry at your attempt to share the gospel, that makes no sense whatsoever in a natural sense. I mean, why should people become angry? At somebody who came to offer us eternal life, but that shows the spiritual warfare that's a reality. There is a kingdom, a kingdom of darkness that is infuriated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is saying here is don't expect everybody to be receptive to the gospel. He warned his disciples in Matthew 10:14: if you go into a city or to a town or a nation where the gospel is rejected, Keep on sharing with them? No, shake the dust off your feet and leave. Yes, the kingdom of darkness is furious about the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, our enemy, the devil, is waging war against anyone who attempts to shine the light of truth into the dark abyss of his lies. And so, while this spiritual battle is raging, Pathway to Victory has made it our mission to fight darkness with light. We refuse to exchange the truth for a lie. We continue with boldness because men and women like you financially support us. And for a few more days, we're saying thanks for your generous gift by providing a copy of my best-selling book, 18 Minutes with Jesus. This is a time-limited offer that ends this week, so please get in touch with us today. I believe this book will become the most important one you read all year. And I say that with confidence because there's nothing more important to you than the issues that matter most to Jesus. In my book, I help you tackle each one of the essential topics he addressed in his Sermon on the Mount, things such as the importance of living in community with other Christians, how to stretch ourselves in matters of faith, and how to attain what our hearts long for. My book comes with a helpful application guide as well, making this a wonderful resource for your small group or your Sunday school class. In closing, I want to thank you for your generous support of Pathway to Victory. These are faith-building days because Pathway to Victory is truly an expression of trust. Our financial obligations are many, but even so, God supplies, and He always does so through friends like you. Don't forget, you can watch Pathway to Victory on television. You can watch us Saturdays at noon Eastern on TBN. Sundays were on hundreds of stations, including TBN at 10 a.m. Eastern and Daystar at 6 p.m. Eastern. David,
1: thanks, Doctor Jeffers. To receive a copy of the best-selling book by Doctor Robert Jeffers called "18 Minutes with Jesus," simply contact the Ministry of Pathway to Victory with a generous gift. As an added bonus, we'll include the corresponding study guide. Call us toll-free at 866-999-2965 or visit our website, that's ptv.org. And when you give $75 or more, we'll also send you the complete collection of audio and video discs for the 18 Minutes with Jesus teaching series. But this offer ends on Wednesday, so be sure to get in touch with us right away. One more time, call 866-999-2965 or go online to ptv.org. You could send your donation by mail if you'd like. Write to P.O. Box two twenty three six zero nine 609 Dallas, Texas, 75222. Again, that's P.O. Box two twenty three six zero nine 609 Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins inviting you to join us again next time for the conclusion of this message called Straight Talk About Your Needs, here on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.